that's the approach that we're going to take today. Many of you know me. Many of you know that I'm not afraid of the tedious approach. That's how we would normally do this, break it into two or four or seven or eight little chunks, and we'd go through it little by little. Uh, but I want to look at this together. And I want to look at this together for a reason. You'll, you'll notice I tend not to put too much weight on sermon titles, but the title for this week is Scattered. And you'll notice that there is a theme at the beginning and the end that holds this whole text, both of these chapters together. Chapter 2, verse 1, the scatterer has come up against you. The Lord is speaking an oracle of judgment against Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He says, the scatterer has come up against you. It is an oracle of complete obliteration. The Lord is saying that he's bringing judgment, and when he's done with the Ninevites, there will not be enough scraps left over to scrabble together uh, even an inkling of a kingdom when he's done. The scatterer has come. We see that same uh, that language again at the end. Chapter 3, verse 18. Speaking to the king of Assyria, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. So we see here in chapters 2 and 3 together a picture of the Lord scattering the nation of Assyria. And if you are tempted to believe that maybe the Lord didn't have much to do with this, that's another item that is repeated in the text. We see in chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That same message reappears. Chapter 3, verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. So there's no question about it. This is the Lord's doing, and what he's doing is scattering the Assyrians, bringing an end to their reign of terror and of their empire. Now, another way that you might want to wrap your mind around what we see here is that, uh, that Nahum is going to give us the same picture from two different vantage points. The destruction of Nineveh we're going to see in chapter 2. These are not the points of my sermon, by the way, but maybe just a way to think about the text as we read through it. In chapter 2, it's concerned with a question of what. What's going to happen? How will it go down when the Lord brings the scattering armies against Nineveh? And then in chapter 3, broadly, there's some overlap here, but broadly chapter 3 is concerned with the why. What led to all of this judgment? What are the sins behind these things? And so as we read through a rather large text, keep these in mind. The Lord himself is scattering Assyria. We're going to see what he's doing, and we're going to hear also why he's doing it. So today, Nahum chapters 2 and 3, before we read this text together, please join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing upon it. Let's pray. O righteous Lord, we pray that our minds and our eyes would be open, that we would be hearers of your word, that your word would be implanted in us with meekness, that we would receive it, and that we would be those who trust upon you, who put our hope not in flesh but in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Nahum chapters 2 and 3. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. 
The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place, the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit put, and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. 
Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word may add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, You are aware, of course, that the Bible tells us that Christians are meant to be different. Paul urged us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Jesus prayed for his disciples who would remain in the world, that they would nevertheless not be people of the world. Christians are meant to be different. And if you want a concrete example of that difference, just consider what it is that we're doing together this morning, right now. Consider how different your unbelieving friends would think you are if you gave them an honest answer to their Monday morning question. You see one of your neighbors tomorrow, and they say, how was your weekend? What did you do? Oh, the usual, you tell them. We we got some work done in the house on Saturday. We took the kids to T-ball. We ordered pizza and watched a movie. Then on Sunday, we went to church. It was wonderfully uplifting. We gathered with 80 other people, and we spent 40 minutes looking at two chapters of prophecy against a nation that disappeared 2,600 years ago you realize that that is different from the way that most people spend their Sunday mornings. That's different that is very different. That's different that is so different it verges on weird. Of course, people have their quirky hobbies. Maybe from the outside, that's what this looks like. I know grown men who spend their weekends reenacting Civil War battles. I met a young boy who likes to collect replicas of old Roman coins. Maybe from the outside, this looks like some other curious pastime. But if that's what what we're doing looks like to the world, the Christian sees things differently. The Christian understands that Nahum's prophecy is more than dead words, written in a dead language to some ancient dead civilization that you can never visit. Nahum's prophecy is God's living word. It's a word for us. It's a word for you and for me. Believe it or not, it's a word of hope. That's what Paul said. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul said that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's what this is about. That's what we're doing here together this morning. Different though it may be, we're gathered around God's word because we believe that he is speaking. Not just in the long ago and far away, but God is speaking in the here and the now to you and to me, and he's speaking hope. Well, how does that work? How can you possibly read of all the scriptures, Nahum chapter 2 and 3, and come away with anything hopeful? I'm glad you asked. Uh, There are three hopeful lessons that I hope you'll learn from Nahum today. 
The first is a historical lesson. And the second is a moral lesson. And the third is a personal lesson. Three lessons for us today. The first is a historical lesson. The historical lesson, I think, is the most obvious. We're dealing in Nahum with nations and conquests, right? With, with wars and, and with battlements and the kinds of things that you can read about in textbooks. When we read Nahum 2 and 3, we're dealing with what Dale Ralph Davis likes to call the having happenedness of God's word. It's real. It actually happened in time and space. There really was an empire as ruthless as scripture tells us the Assyrian empire was. And they really were virtually wiped off the map at the end of the 7th century, not to be found again to the 19th century. At 7th century BC to 19th century AD, virtually lost. And as we read God's prophecy, we need to keep in mind this concrete reality that the Lord is speaking to us of real lives and real suffering and real defeat at the hands of invading armies. In fact, that's the overall impression that we get just in the way that we hear this prophecy coming to us. So I, I hope that you heard that, uh, that rhythm as we went through some of these quick, terse phrases. Uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 and 6. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. In the Hebrew, most of those individual lines are each just two words. It is this quick staccato rhythm that, that uh, Nahum is giving us just to heap description upon description of this overwhelming assault. His prophecy is like a machine gun that makes us want to take cover, and that's intentional. This is the prophetic version of, of all of these modern-day war movies that you can go out and see now. You know how it used to be that, uh, that in cinema for decades, if you wanted to impress people with the magnitude of warfare, you would pull back, you would take a steady shot, you would let the crowd or the, the audience see wave after wave of men rushing to the front lines. And then somewhere around 20, 25 years ago, the camera was taken off the tripod. And it was put in somebody's hand, and suddenly it's, it's marching through the action, and you're there, and you're on Omaha Beach, and the gunfire is all around you, and the sand is splattered in your face, and the bodies are there, and the shell shock is palpable, and it's intentional. It's meant to, to convey something of the confusion of warfare, a, a situation that many of us will never actually experience. This is what Nahum is doing. He's putting us in the action. He's transporting us prophetically to the thick of battle, not so that we would be entertained, rather so that we would know that God is the God of real life and death. God is the God of real history. He's the God of the trenches and the siege tower and the nitty-gritty of one nation rising against another. And the more that archaeology reveals about what actually happened to Nineveh, the more we see just how accurate Nahum's description was. Nineveh was a massive city for its day. It was built along the Tigris River in what we now know as Iraq. The city of Mosul, the modern city, has been built around the ruins 
of Nineveh, so that's where it is. And, and Nineveh consisted of uh, an inner city surrounded by a mud brick wall that was about eight miles in circumference. Depending on where you hit that wall, it was between 60 and 100 feet high. It was so thick that on the top of that wall, three chariots could ride side by side by side for patrols. It was an enormous structure. And outside the inner wall was a defensive moat that was fed by the waters of two smaller rivers that ran through the city. Beyond the moat were the suburbs. That's where most of the people of Nineveh lived. They were protected still further out by earthworks and battlements that were meant to slow down an invading force so many of the people in the suburbs could find shelter inside of the walled city. It was a city that was so big and so well protected that its inhabitants believed it to be virtually impregnable. And the record of the battle in 612 BC that we hear that comes down to us from secular sources records that actually that huge wall did initially stop the Medes and the Babylonians when they came to sack the city. The scatterers who came against the Assyrian wall were halted for a time. And during that time, what they did is they closed the aqueducts. They dug tunnels to further divert the river, and they waited for the rainy seasons to come. And when they did, when the rainy seasons came, there were a series of storms and the Tigris began to flood. And at the height of the flood, the aqueducts were open and the reservoirs were emptied and a torrent of water flattened that massive wall for a span of two miles to let the invading armies in. Once the wall was breached, it was all but over. Verse 8 of Nahum chapter 2 says that Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Remind you of those video clips you can see on the internet, right? Of those, those tall rubber backyard pools. And everybody's safe and splashing and the whole family is there having a good time and then something pokes the side and suddenly brother and sister are washed out and all of your lawn chairs are floating down the street. That's exactly how it happened. The torrent came and the wall was breached and Nineveh was like a pool whose waters run away. That's how it happened. Archaeology reveals that flood debris has been found at the highest parts of the city ruins. So chapter 2, verse 6 says, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Archaeologists have found tablets and writings and artwork. They've found almost no treasure at all. No coins, no gold from the once most uh, prosperous city in the world. And so chapter 2, verse 9 says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure, say the plunderers, as they're carrying it away. The bricks that remain are covered in ash from the fires that were lit to burn Nineveh to the ground. So chapter 3, verse 13 says, the gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Nahum is giving us a picture of real history here, folks. And so you won't be surprised to know that among the unbelieving and the critical scholars, one of the, uh, the persistent criticisms that is leveled against Nahum is that his description is too accurate to have been written before it actually happened. He must have written after, long after the Assyrian threat was neutralized, they say. But the fact of the matter is that Nahum wrote this history before it happened. You see details elsewhere in the text that he's speaking to a people who are still oppressed by Assyria. 
He's writing this at the height of the Assyrian Empire, the height of the Assyrian power, when nobody would have believed if God had not told them that this could actually happen. He wrote this before the fact. He revealed what the Lord was going to do. He spoke his prophecy concerning a nation that thought that they were the exception to the rule. They only, of all the kingdoms that had ever been on the earth, they only were the ones who could be unconquerable. So it is in Nahum chapter 3 that the prophet offers a history lesson within a history lesson. It shows up beginning at verse 8. The question, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea, and her water a wall? We're not going to go into all the details there. Those students among us can find out all that they need to know with a Google search later. You can find these things. Uh, They're well known, though. Thebes was... Uh, the capital of the previously believed unconquerable city. Thebes was the capital of the late Egyptian kingdom. Today it's known as Luxor City, sitting on the Nile River. When you think of, uh, of pyramids, you're thinking of Giza. That's up in the north. When you think of sphinxes and sarcophagi in the Valley of the Kings, that's, uh, that's Thebes. It had protection, it had resources, it had allies without measure. It was the center of a military machine that drew strength from the entire northwestern corner of the African continent. In 663 BC, which was probably about 25 years before Nahum wrote his words, Thebes, the unconquerable, was conquered. The Assyrians, of course, would remember that because they were the ones who had done it. The Assyrians traveled 1,200 miles from their home in Nineveh. They conquered and assimilated 22 other kingdoms along the way into Egypt and arrived at the unconquerable city and put Thebes to the sword. As Nahum records, they dashed their infants and they sold their nobles. They claimed a victory over the great capital that previously appeared impregnable. You see, in chapter 3, verse 8, the Lord is taking a swipe at Nineveh's pride. Are you better than Thebes, he asks. Do you think that you will stand where they fell? Do you really think that your ship is unsinkable? Nahum is saying that the enemies of God need to learn an important historical lesson. And the lesson is that the God of our history is also the God of our future. The God who directed the past is the same one who declares what is still yet to be. This is the same lesson that we need to learn. Though perhaps we need to learn it from the greater to the lesser. There is a God who directs the flow of nations. He's active, even now. He's not sitting and watching. He is directing. He is deciding. He is shaping. He is changing. He directs the flow of nations. He shapes the course of churches. He molds families according to his pleasure. He brings circumstances and situations to fashion individuals as he sees fit. The God of history is the God of the nations. He's the God of empires and conquests. He's the God of revolutions and of constitutions. He's the God of elections and legislation and local magistrate. He's the God of job changes and family disappointments and church splits and loose teeth and scheduling conflicts. From the galactic to the granular, from the universal to the intimate, he is the sovereign Lord 
of all that is, and the God of your history is also the God of your future. Here I remind you again that the prophecy of Nahum is written about God's enemies, but it's written to God's people. You'll notice that in this passage, in these chapters, there is no call to repent. There is no offer of salvation. God is not even, in a sense, speaking to the Assyrians, though he's speaking to the Israelites about the Assyrians. He's speaking to teach them that he's the one who's moving and changing and directing all they see. He's speaking to them so that they will know that they can have hope. Faith that what the Lord says he will do, he actually will accomplish. And that's the historical lesson we need to take away. It's the historical lesson we learn from all of Scripture. Yes, God spoke through Nahum and said that he was going to scatter the Assyrians. God also spoke to Abraham. He told him his descendants would be slaves for 400 years, but that he would bring them out in safety. The Lord also spoke through Jeremiah. He said, after 70 years of exile, I'm going to do the unthinkable and I'm going to bring the people back. Jesus spoke to his disciples in the temple. He said, you see all of these magnificent buildings around you, these things that you're marveling at, there's a day coming when not a single stone will be left upon the other. Jesus told us that he's going to be with us always, even to the end of the age. The angels told the disciples that Jesus was going to come back just the way that they had seen him go. God revealed to John that there was a day coming that Satan and death itself would be done away with. And some of these things have already come to pass. And others are things that you can trust are yet to come. But the historical lesson we need to learn from Nahum is that the God of our history is also the God of our future. He is the God who can be trusted to do just what he says. Now, there is a vast difference, though, between believing that God can be trusted and believing that he actually should be. There's a difference between understanding intellectually that God is sovereign and believing with all your heart and soul and mind and strength that God is good. And so in addition to this historical lesson, we also need to learn a moral lesson in Nahum. And here our focus ought to be on the atrocities that God details at the beginning of chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, he says, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. Now, as you read those words, you might have the same question in mind that I encountered this week in my studies. And the question is, is this description talking about what would happen to Assyria? Or is this question, or these verses, talking about what Assyria did? In other words, is is this the bloody trail that Nineveh left behind them, or is this the punishment that awaits them for all that they had done? Actually, the scholars are divided on that question. It could apply to either, they say. It almost seems as though Nahum is being intentionally ambiguous so that we would be pulled in two directions, so that we might almost apply this in both directions. And when we do, it's the first indication that God is operating here with a principle of retributive 
justice. You know, that eye for an eye and a, a tooth for a tooth thing. That idea that as you sow, so shall you reap. That idea that what Assyria has brought in the nations, God is bringing now against them. So far, so good. But verse 4 goes a step further. We see that this is not merely some Christianized version of karma. As you give out, so it will come back to you. No, this is judgment for sin according to God's standard of righteousness. Verse 4, God declares that all of it can be traced back. All that Nineveh has done, all that's going to be done to Nineveh, it all has a reason. He says, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Nahum is, Nahum is speaking in uh, prophetic pictures, you understand. A lot like Hosea and a lot like Ezekiel. And that means that though he's using imagery of a prostitute and he speaks of whorings, uh, his primary complaint is not necessarily against the sexual deviance that was all over the Assyrian Empire. It was all over the Assyrian Empire, by the way. Most of it was connected with the worship of their great goddess, Art, uh, not Artemis, <laughs> that was the, the Greeks, Ishtar, sorry. Their great goddess, Ishtar. Uh, the goddess of, uh, of war and fertility and love. So there's sexual deviance there in the Assyrian Empire, but that doesn't seem to be primarily what Nahum is speaking about. No, he uses this image here of the prostitute to reveal Nineveh as a kingdom that entrapped other kingdoms with false promises. Promises of pleasure and safety, promises of protection that turned out to be empty. They were betrayers and beguilers in the grandest sense. They offered their strength to the highest bidder. Come and take shelter under the wings of the Assyrian Empire, they would say. We'll care for you. We'll protect you from those other nations around you. Just give us all of your gold and all of your treasure. And by the way, when the money runs out, we're coming after you next. Do you remember what happened when King Ahaz of Judah was beguiled by the charms of Assyria? The story is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 16. There's a time of war, we read, and two kings came against Judah, uh, the king of Damascus and the king of Israel. And what could Ahaz do? They besieged him. He was stuck in Jerusalem and couldn't get out. What could he do? Well, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 7 says that Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And he said, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hands of the king of Assyria, from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria listened to him. It will only cost you all the treasures in the temple, all the treasuries of the kingdom, but I'll come and I'll, I'll care for you. And you can read the rest of the story yourself. Tiglath-Pileser did come and delivered Judah. And then Ahaz went to Nineveh to meet him and to greet his, his deliverer from these kingdoms. And when Ahaz traveled to Nineveh, he was entranced. The king of God's covenant people was enthralled by the wonderful and glorious altars that he saw in the temples to Ishtar. 
So he sent word back to the high priest in Jerusalem, let's get rid of that little altar we have. Let's replace it with a much bigger altar, a much better altar, one that looks like a nation that has power, just like the Assyrians. He was beguiled and he was brought in. And what did Ahaz get for all of his trouble? He got outward peace for a time. Right? He got uh, the nations of Israel and Syria off his back. But he also fell into sin. He also walked into idolatry. He also engaged in the prostitution of going after these other gods that the Lord had warned his people not to go after, not to play the harlot with these gods all around them. Eventually, Ahaz got destruction. Because for all of his dealings with Assyria, all he did was put Jerusalem on Assyria's map. Here's another one that we're going to come after, they could say. Here's another one who has resources. Here's another one who has slaves and people and things that we can cart off. And it's only a matter of time before the deliverer became the devourer. And just as Assyria did to Judah, so she did to the other nations. Their abominations are widespread. You notice that this whole passage, this whole book, ends with a rhetorical question. Right? All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The expected answer is there's no one. There's no one who hasn't tasted of the evil of Assyria, of the the danger of their, uh, their empire. This is what Assyria was known for. She made smooth promises of safety and and deliverance, and then she turned around and she enslaved the people she promised to protect. She's like the wily woman of Proverbs that Solomon warns us about. He says her speech is smoother than oil. She spreads her bed with colorful linens. She dons her sweet perfume. She says nice things like, my husband is not at home. There's no danger here. You'll not come to ruin. It will be nice. It will be safe. It will be pleasant. It will be enjoyable. And all who turn aside to her go down to the grave. And you might say, well, pastor, that's an interesting comparison you're making there. A few more historical tidbits. But what does that have to do with Nahum? What do Assyria's abominations have to do with where we find ourselves two and a half millennia later? Now here's the point. Here's here's what it has to do with all this. This is the moral lesson we need to learn, that the God of history is not fickle. He is not capricious. He's not vindictive. He's not otherwise unpredictable. The Lord of history did not wake up one day and simply decide to be against Nineveh because that's what felt right that morning. He's not easily swayed the way we are swayed. The moral lesson we learn in Nahum is that the God who rules the nations rules the nations in perfect righteousness. God operates according to his unchanging standards of sin and justice. He judges the nations with equity, says the psalmist. He guides the people upon the earth. The God who rules the nations rules with absolute righteousness. And that means that the other thing that the psalmist said about him is true. Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. It means that nobody can stay his hand. 
Nobody can come to him and say, no, 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 you're doing the wrong thing. Don't do that. Do this other thing that I want you to do. Change your mind. He does what he desires. He's absolutely sovereign over the rise and the fall of nations, over the ebb and the flow of fortunes, over the life and the death of sinners. The psalmist is right. Our God does all he pleases. But it also means that what Abraham said about God is true as well. Do you remember when the Lord was going down to see about the sin of Sodom and Abraham began pleading and interceding for his family that was there? At one point, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall he not do what is right? He does all he pleases, but can we not trust him implicitly to do what is good, what is right, what is true? What is righteous? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Indeed, he will. He always does. The Lord didn't smite Assyria without a warning. Remember Jonah. He didn't condemn that city without reason. He doesn't bring his justice against sinners without justification. But neither does the Lord allow the guilty to go unpunished. Dr. Harry Reeder is a pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Alabama, and he describes the book of Nahum by saying that Nahum is a book about nations. And it's a book that describes what happens to nations when they've been blessed by God and they turn and rebel against him. There ought to be a word for us, for our culture. You don't have to have an answer for that old riddle, right? Well, was America originally intended to be a quote-unquote Christian nation? Is it now, in any sense, a Christian nation or not? You don't have to answer that question. It should be enough to agree with Dr. Reeder's assessment to say that America has been greatly blessed, and then to look around us and say America is in great rebellion. And we could point at the low-hanging fruit if you want to do that. Right, the sexual deviance in which our culture is practically swimming. And there's plenty of it, and most of it is associated with the endless worship of the God of self. We can talk about that if we want to. But actually, there are other forms of rebellion, aren't there? There are many other ways that our prideful and materialistic and authority-hating godless culture day by day whispers lies into our ears and into the ears of our children. There are other natural, national and cultural and personal sins that tempt us to define what is good according to the pleasure and safety that we can find in this life. And when the God of history declares judgment on Nineveh, It ought to be a wake-up call concerning all the many ways that we sinners try to push God's righteousness to the margin of our lives. Scripture tells us God shall not be mocked. And as we sow, so shall we reap. The moral lesson we need to understand here in Nahum is that the God who rules the nations rules the nations in perfect righteousness. I told you there were three lessons. There's a historical lesson that the God of our history is the God of our future. There's a moral lesson that God rules the earth in righteousness. Lastly, in these chapters, we need to learn a personal lesson. I think this one is uh, really the most straightforward of the three. I think it's a very simple concept, and yet 
I imagine that it's one that might be hard for some people to swallow. The personal lesson in Nahum is that the God of our history, the God who rules in righteousness, is also a God who shows favoritism. Our God is a God who shows favoritism. He's a God of compassion. He is a God who chooses sometimes to extend mercy in place of justice. He is a God who promises not to make a complete end of some sinners who deserve to face destruction. The God of history is a God who shows favoritism, and he shows favoritism toward his chosen people. I said it might be hard to swallow, so let's see it in the text. Look back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to Nineveh, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. He's calling them to get ready, excuse me, he's calling them to get ready for a battle they can't win. But why? He gives us his reason in the next verse. For, he says, the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. I'll admit that it's only a very small glimpse of grace. Right? It's just the tiniest, briefest indication of, of a blessing that Israel did not deserve. But brief though it is, it's an indication that the God of history is making a choice. He is choosing to execute justice on Nineveh, and he is choosing to show mercy on Israel. And that might be hard to swallow. If it is hard to swallow, I imagine that it's because it assaults our sense of what we like to call fairness. The idea that everybody should get equal treatment. Everybody should end up with the same slice of the pie. Everybody should have the same opportunities. Maybe everybody should receive the same outcomes from the hand of God in the end. And when we see examples, like we do in Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3, of God making a choice for some people and not for others, we're tempted to say, but that's not fair. And we're right. It's not fair. But our problem is that we too often assume that fairness is how we get what we ought or what we want rather than what we deserve. Fairness is is what we claim when we say, I haven't gotten enough, I should get more, rather than looking at fairness as what we actually deserve. After my last sermon on Nahum in in chapter 1, I had a few pretty interesting conversations with some of you about the horrors of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, We talked and we compared Assyria to some of the other brutal regimes through history. The Babylonians, the Nazis... Uh, Stalin and, and his, uh, his people, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, ISIS and Boko Haram. We talked about nations and empires that though they might have done things differently than the Assyrians, nevertheless they demonstrated that that Assyrian impulse is alive and well all throughout human history. We like, to, we like to put people like the Assyrians or the Nazis in a special camp and say, We're okay, we deserve more because we are so much different than they are, you see. But if that Assyrian impulse shows up so often and so consistently through human history, it ought to be an indication that the problem with Assyria is not so unique as we might like to think. The problem with Assyria is the problem with humanity. 
It's the lust for power and for domination. It is rebellion against any authority higher than ourselves, moral or spiritual or otherwise, it doesn't matter. And that problem doesn't have to show up in, in bloodthirsty warfare to put us all in the category of deserving the Assyrian judgment rather than the Israelite grace. Now, truth is, if fairness is what we're after, we're all sunk. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, details what the Assyrian impulse looks like when it's carried to its logical conclusion in the hearts of humanity. This is what he says. Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. They're insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil, they're disobedient to their parents, they are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And I wonder if that sounds like anybody you know. Right? Pick your poison. Does that sound like anyone that you see every single morning in the mirror looking back at you? Praise the Lord that by his restraining grace, this whole list won't look like us, at least not all the time. But we can all go through that list and we can agree with Romans 3 when we read Romans 1 that there's none righteous, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. Our feet are swift to shed blood. The venom of asps is under our tongue, swift to do evil. There's none righteous. It's the Assyrian impulse, is it not? It's the sin of rebellion in the heart of man. And what should God do with that rebellion if he deals with it in fairness? Let me point you back to Nahum chapter 1, verse 8. This is the summary for what's happening to Nineveh. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. I don't think that fairness is what we want. Favoritism is what we want. God's favor upon us, his grace undeserved, his mercy poured out on sinners, that's what we want. We want God's sovereign choice that makes children out of enemies, that makes saints out of sinners. God's choice and his favoritism that raises us up with the son who bore the guilt that we deserve to carry. It wasn't very fair, was it? It wasn't very fair that the only one who never felt and never expressed that damnable Assyrian impulse should be pursued into the darkness for the sins of a rebellious people. Isaiah says it wasn't fair, right? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He received what we deserved. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He did it so that he could shower his favoritism not fairness, not justice upon all who trust in him. So even here, we encounter the God who makes a choice. Even here, we encounter the God who calls us to make ours. He is the God of your history as well as your future. He is the God who rules all the nations and all individuals with perfect righteousness. 
He is the God who will show the mercy of favor to all who trust in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the hope that we find in your word. We pray that as we read and as we study and as we pray, you would lead us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for grace and favor poured out through the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the table that we will come to in just a moment that proclaims again to us the mercy of God through Jesus Christ for lost sinners. Help us, O Lord, to have faith in you to trust that you will do all that you say, that you will bring about all of your promises through him. Give us hope and faith in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the table that proclaims to us the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. It's a table set with tangible signs and symbols, bread and a cup that declare to us Christ's body broken and his blood poured out. He is the perfect and the sinless one, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This table is not set for those who are sinless, but for those who need the sinless one. And so this table comes with a call, with an invitation that all who trust in him would come and eat and drink by faith, that they would receive